Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 18 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, The Conquest of Scotland, 1297 to 1305, Part 2. For nearly six years Edward strove to complete that conquest of Scotland, which he had begun by his victory at Falkirk. Year after year he entered Scotland, and little by little the stubborn Scots bent their backs to the English yoke. The courts of justice and the apparatus of government were transferred from London to York, and it seemed as if the old Roman city was again about to become the permanent capital of a united Britain. But all sorts of difficulties still stood in Edward's way. He still had to deal with the persistent agitation of his subjects for the renewal of the confirmation of the charters. He had still to conclude his intricate negotiations with the French king. He did not establish any real understanding with his subjects until 1301. His French troubles were not finally over until 1303. The peace with France involved both delays and difficulties. The truce was prolonged many times before it resulted in the formal treaty signed 19th of June, 1299, at Montreuil, a town in Edward's own county of Ponthieu. In accordance with its provisions, Edward was married to Philip's sister Margaret, and his son Edward promised to Isabella, Philip's daughter. In return for this, Edward utterly abandoned his Flemish allies to the vengeance of the French king, though the Flemings declared that in so doing he broke an oath which he had sworn to Count Guy. But Edward was seldom over-scrupulous, and he had already obtained from Philip a similar abandonment of his allies, the Scots. But Philip was still unyielding as regards Gascony. On various pretexts, he still kept that duchy in his own hands until, in 1302, the stubborn Flemings utterly defeated the chivalry of France in the famous Battle of Courtrai, where the tactics with which Wallace had failed to win the day at Falkirk were repeated with overwhelming effect against the best cavalry of Christendom. Philip now saw that he had plenty of work cut out for him at home, especially as his old strife with Boniface VIII had been recently renewed in a more inveterate and deadly form. 
and Boniface, changing his policy, strove to induce Edward to renew his attack on Philip. But Edward was of no mind to serve the Pope's turn, the more so as Philip, induced by necessity, now gave way about Gascony. In 1303, a definitive peace was signed between France and England. Gascony was restored, and an offensive and defensive alliance entered upon by the two kings. For the rest of his reign, Edward remained at peace with the nations of the continent. His persistency had in the long run overcome the duplicity of his neighbor. The struggle for the mastery in Britain could now be fought out on British soil unhindered by foreign intervention. The constitutional struggle was much harder to settle. The confirmation of the charters in 1297 proved not the end, but the beginning of a new and acrimonious controversy between the king and his subjects. The two earls were not satisfied with Edward's first ratification of his son's acts, and their hesitation to discharge their obligations against the Scots, unless Edward again confirmed the charters, was, as we have seen, a source of weakness to the king all through the Falkirk campaign. Next year, 1299, the demand for the further confirmation both of the Great Charter and of the Forest Charter was again raised. But like a true descendant of the Norman kings, Edward regarded the forests as the special property of the crown and resented all restriction of his forest rights as an insult both to his person and to his dignity. He was forced indeed to give way, but the blessings of the people were changed into curses when it was found that he had confirmed the forest charter with the proviso, saving the rights of the crown. A long agitation now broke out, during which neither side showed much temper or forbearance. Edward's evident reluctance to yield up any tittle of his prerogative and his strong tendency to interpret any concession he made in the narrowest and most technical spirit added to the exasperation of his subjects while the old king grew beside himself with fury when he found his barons and parliaments perfectly indifferent to the progress of his Scottish conquest and persistently refusing all help except on the terms of his complete submission. Very reluctantly and unwillingly, Edward yielded to the inevitable in the Parliament of 1300 and by the issue of the Articuli Supercartas, evaded a formal confirmation by accepting in another way the main conditions imposed on him by his subjects. But even then he had no peace. In 1301 a new parliament assembled at Lincoln, where a clever combination against the king was carried through by the dexterous diplomacy of Archbishop Winchelsea. The estates demanded the removal of the treasurer, Walter Langdon, Bishop of Lichfield, and the chief minister of Edward's later years. Again, Edward was forced to an almost unconditional submission through which he saved his minister. After all, the Scots' war lay nearest to his heart, 
and he at length saw that as long as king and people were divided, the Scots could never be subdued. Edward had made great concessions, both to France and to his parliaments, in order to isolate the Scots from all moral and material support. But a third obstacle now interposed itself between him and his revolted subjects, in a peremptory order from Boniface the Eighth, that Edward should desist from the Scots' war. Scotland, said the Pope, was a fief of the Holy See. To wage war against the Scots was to rob the papacy of its choicest prerogative of protecting its obedient subjects. The claim was first put before Edward while besieging Calaveric. Winchelsea was, as usual, on the Pope's side. He now sought out the king in Galloway with a papal envoy in his train. Edward's hot temper fired up as the archbishop exhorted him, in biblical phrase, to desist from further hostilities. By God's blood, he cried, I will not hold my peace for Sion, nor keep silence for Jerusalem, but I will maintain my right, which all the world knows, with all my might. In the Lincoln Parliament, Winchelsea was again active in pressing the Pope's claim, but the barons, though they joined with the archbishop in his demand for the confirmation of the charters, stood manfully for the king in resisting this new and unheard-of papal pretension. A spirited remonstrance was drawn up in the name of the barons, which declared in good round terms that the pope's interference was meddlesome and intolerable. The result was that the relations between England and Rome again became strained. As a further result, Boniface's attitude left Edward in no mood to listen to the entreaties of the pope to take up his side in the great struggle that now broke out between France and the papacy. Edward was too pious and too busy at home to join actively in Philip's violent and brutal onslaughts on the unhappy Pope. But the fall and death of Boniface in 1303 and the thorough subjugation of the papacy to France which followed taught Edward to estimate at their true value the thunders of Rome. He was at last free from papal as from baronial and foreign opposition. During the weary years of threefold strife, Edward had still turned his whole available energies to the reconquest of Scotland, though he had made little progress. In 1299, the barons had refused to follow him, as his promises to keep the charters were still unratified. After his submission in 1300, Edward was able to take the field with a gallant army that marched from Carlisle to the conquest of the southwest. The most famous incident in this campaign was the capture of Calaveric, a stronghold held by only sixty men against Edward's great host, and commemorated in a French poem dear to genealogists and heralds. In 1301, Edward was again in Scotland, and after conquering the greater part of the land south of the Forth, 
he took up his winter quarters in the old palace of the Scots kings at Linlithgow. Early in 1302, Edward held a round table at Falkirk to celebrate the progress of his conquest. But though the Scots yielded before the advance of his troops, they were still far from being subdued. In 1303, the Scots surprised and defeated the king's troops at the Battle of Roslyn. This was their last great success. In 1303, the real conquest of Scotland began. Edward was at last free to devote all his energy to the task, and long years of warfare had worn out the energies of the long-suffering Scots. Edward's work now seemed quite a simple one. Edward next made a great progress through Scotland, which recalls the famous march of 1296. He marched through Perth, Brechin, and Aberdeen to Banff. As far north as Caithness, the weight of his arm was felt, and the Highland chieftains flocked to his camp to make their submission. At last, John Coleman, who had governed Scotland since Falkirk as regent for King John, despaired of further resistance and made his peace with Edward. The only strong place that now held out was Stirling. Edward took up his winter quarters at Dunfermline, where, so peaceful was the country now, he was joined by his young queen. With the spring of 1304, the attack on Stirling began. It was a siege conducted with all the military skill known at the time. Huge wooden machines cast stones weighing two or three hundred weight into the castle. Battering rams were brought to bear against the walls. Movable turrets were wheeled up against the battlements, and the fosses were filled up with stones and earth. At last, on the 20th of July, the scanty garrison surrendered. There was no longer any organized resistance to Edward's authority in Scotland. But Wallace, the hero of the First Revolt, who had almost disappeared from history after his defeat at Falkirk, now again came on the scene. His old fame was half forgotten, and the long struggle had disheartened the Scots too much for them to venture upon a fresh rising. The hero lurked in the woods and hills with a scanty following, while Edward, secure of his triumph, returned to England, and, as a sign that the war was over, ordered the return of the courts of justice and officers of state from York to Westminster. Nor was the king's confidence ill-grounded. In the summer of 1305, Wallace was captured through the treachery of a Scot and brought to London for trial. Condemned as traitor, murderer, and incendiary, Wallace suffered in due course the terrible penalties of the English law of treason. His death has been made a matter of reproach to Edward, on the ground that, unlike most of his countrymen, he had never become the king's vassal. But the evidence of this fact is not very good. Moreover, the laws of war were stern in the 14th century, and no technical claim of right was likely to protect the very soul of the long resistance of Scotland. 
Edward acted as anyone else would have acted in his place. In holding out against Edward, Wallace knew full well that he carried his life in his hands. It adds, rather than lessens the glory of the Scottish hero, that in due course he paid the penalty of his heroism and self-devotion. But the special glory of Wallace belongs to a later age, when the songs of the Scottish bards had made him the popular hero of the War of Independence. Edward now drew up a scheme for the government of Scotland. A very limited parliament met in September 1305 to settle the question. In this assembly, Edward, true to his doctrine of popular control, caused ten representatives of the Scottish estates to appear. These included two bishops, two earls, two abbots, two barons, and two representatives of the commons, one for the north and the other for the south. The English were represented by twenty magnates. Scots and English lords together drafted a plan for the future administration of the conquered realm. This was the ordinance for the government of Scotland, the last and perhaps the most striking of Edward's many claims to statesmanship. Admitting that Scotland was to be ruled by Edward at all, it is hard to see how the government of Scotland could have been better arranged than by this plan. John of Brittany, Edward's faithful nephew, was made warden or lieutenant of the whole land with the ordinary officers of state under him. For the purposes of justice, Scotland, like Wales, was divided into large districts. Eight judges were chosen, two for the Lothians and the other English lands south of the Forth, two for the Welsh or British lands of Galloway and Strathclyde, two for the English-speaking lands between the Forth and the Grampians, and two for the Celtic Highlands. Sheriffs, coroners, and the other officers of the English shire system were appointed to hold office during the king's pleasure. They were to be either Englishmen or Scotsmen. The rude Celtic laws, the laws of the Bretts or Welsh in Strathclyde, and the laws of the Scots or Highlanders, were, like the Welsh laws of Howelda, repugnant to Edward's notions of justice. They were therefore to be swept away, and replaced by the English and Norman laws which, since the days of King David, had prevailed in the Scottish lowlands. John of Brittany was instructed to assemble the good folk of the land of Scotland in some fixed place, and ascertain from them what King David's laws really were, and what additions had been subsequently made to them. He was also directed to redress and amend such of the Scots' laws as were plainly against God and reason, taking the advice of both English and Scottish counsellors in arriving at this result, and referring all decisions of great importance to the immediate judgment of the King of England. Thus, by Edward's scheme, a separate administration was provided for Scotland, though the Scots were secured with some measure of representation in the English Parliament. For the most part, the Scots' administration was put into Scots' hands, and the prospect of a great legislative reform in the immediate future was an additional inducement 
for the Scots to accept the new constitution with its program of practical reforms and strong sound rule as a substitute for their old turbulent independence. But it was too late for conciliation. Nearly twenty years of warfare and hatred had worked out their fateful results. Nothing but sheer force kept Scotland obedient to her foreign conqueror. Half Scotland waited for an opportunity for rebellion. That opportunity was not long in coming. End of section 18. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.